0: Father, we thank you for the joy that we have of Christian fellowship. We're thankful, Lord, that we not only can uh, have friendship in the human sense, but we can have beyond the human uh, friendship, that friendship which comes by each possessing the indwelling spirit of God, that gives us a oneness, and we're grateful for that. Lord, I pray that you will be near to us now during this time of our study, We know that you dwell in our hearts. I pray that our faith concerning the work of your spirit will be strong and we'll be open to listen to what you say to us from your word. I ask that your blessing will be upon the Sunday school in all of the classes from the uh, nursery all the way through the adult classes. And I ask that your blessing will be upon the service, which is going on at this time also. We're just thankful, Father, that in all things you have the preeminence, and that you are our teacher, our guide, our strength, our shield, and we trust in you for your special blessing this hour, in Christ's name, amen. Last time, as we looked at this outline which I gave to you, we have begun a study of the life of Moses, and we looked at some background materials last time talked a little bit, as you, if you were here, you'll remember, about the name Egypt, where that comes from, uh, about the uh, significant role of the Nile River, about the time of the flooding and the time of the planting and the kinds of crops and the kinds of animals, and, and really sort of the situation that the Israelites would find themselves as they moved into the delta of the Nile River. And I think it's important that as you look at this map, that we, we note that the Israelites lived apparently over on the east side of the delta. This, this form here, this, the river comes and it, it breaks into distributaries which then flow to the sea. Uh, that form is what the uh, ancient Greeks, when they moved in and dominated this area after Alexander the Great conquered Egypt, they gave the term delta to this form. And delta, as you know, is the triangular letter of the Greek alphabet. And that term, because of the triangular shape of, of this situation here, was then applied to this feature, and, and we even use that today in English to refer to the delta, the triangle formed as the river uh, merges with the sea. And so the Jews, the Israelites, lived over here on this side, and that's where the land of Goshen was. And I'll make reference to some of the other sites there as we go along. We're going to see, uh, in in some detail also, the uh, time frame as we move through the story of Moses. If you look at your outline there, we got down to Roman numeral uh, 1D, down to 3, which was the delta which I talked about uh, at the end of class last time and the location of the Israelites there. By the way, sometimes as we get towards the end of class minds start to wander. Let me just remind you that the delta was a very, very significant part of Egypt. In fact, the delta comprised the vast bulk of what was known as Lower Egypt. If all of the square mileage of the delta were added up, it would exceed the square mileage of the river valley from Memphis all the way to the first cataract of the Nile. So we're, we're talking about a very significant area in terms of the land that would be cropped and upon which animals would be raised, and thus the Israelites lived in, in a very prominent part of uh, Egypt. Now the chronology is uh, a little bit hazy, we, we don't know exactly the year or even maybe possibly exactly the century that the Israelites moved into Egypt. It was probably uh, somewhere around the year 1800, give or take a few years B.C. But I think it's important for us to note that the Israelites lived in Egypt during all or part of the three periods that I have listed for you here under letter, capital letter E. They entered Egypt during the Middle Kingdom period, probably around or just before 1800. Now, let me uh, just say something that I'm sure is quite obvious and uh, familiar to you in the general sense of the term. When, when you study history, we talk about, for example, the Middle Ages, we talk about the Renaissance, we talk about the Reformation, and we usually give a date. Historians give dates to these uh, time periods. And... Well, well, as the French say, c'est la voie sans dire, you know, that it goes without saying probably that we understand that we're talking about transition, right? Although Martin Luther nailed the, the 95 Theses on the church door on a specific day in a specific year, to say the Reformation began at that moment and there was no, nothing of it before and lots of it after is, of course, doesn't make good sense. So when, I, when we list here the Middle Kingdom from 2000 to 1800, we, we, we acknowledge the fact that those are rounded off approximate dates, okay? And that moving into the Middle Kingdom and moving out of the K- Middle Kingdom, you have a transition period of time. And so the Middle Kingdom, as far as the existence of a reigning monarch who could be considered a part of, you know, a pharaoh of the Middle Kingdom, uh, could go beyond 1800. Uh, the second intermediate period, which were, would follow... Uh, simply involves the two transition times out of the Middle Kingdom and then into the New Kingdom and the events which transpired in between. So the Israelites came into Egypt during the latter portion of the Middle Kingdom period, somewhere probably around 1800 B.C. They would multiply in Egypt uh, on a grand scale during the so-called Second Intermediate Period. Now, it's called the second intermediate period because obviously there was a first intermediate period. (laughs) Ancient Egypt is divided into three major kingdoms, the old kingdom, the middle kingdom, and the new kingdom. And in between the old and the middle was the first intermediate, and between the middle and the new kingdom was the second intermediate period. And it's during that period of 200 or, or so years that Israel, the Israelis are multiplying, their families are growing, they're, be- they're, they're spreading out across the, the Delta region. And then, merge, as we move into the New Kingdom period, the uh, Israelites now are beginning to be subjected to oppression. They become truly enslaved during the period of the New Kingdom. And it will be, during that period, probably only hundred or hundred and fifty years into the New Kingdom that they will then break out of uh, Egypt on the Exodus under the leadership of Moses. So the Israelis lived there long enough to see three major eras in Egyptian history. The end of the Middle Kingdom, the whole transitional period between the two kingdoms called the Second Intermediate Period, and then the first century or century and a half of the New Kingdom. That's what happens when you live in a country for 400 uh, years as a a people, and as the Israelites did. So let's turn to the first chapter of Exodus, and i like to read the first seven verses. Exodus 1, verse 1. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came each one with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulon, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And all the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were seventy in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. And Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the sons of Israel were fruitful, and increased greatly, and multiplied, became exceedingly mighty, so that the land was filled with them. Obviously, that's you know, that's hyperbolic speaking. Uh, the land wasn't literally filled with them, but they were spread out across the landscape in, 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 in large numbers. Now, those of you who have studied Scripture in, in the entire scope from the beginning to the end are aware of the fact that between the book of Malachi, which ends the Old Testament, and Matthew, which begins the New Testament, is a period of 400 years, often referred to as the silent years, because there's no record of God having spoken uh, or provided any written word during those 400 years. A very similar claim could probably therefore be made for the period between Genesis and Exodus, because the length is very similar, pretty close to 400 years between those two books more specifically between the death of of joseph and moses encounter with god in the burning bush because that's basically the silent period uh, that is not recorded in scripture if during that time god did speak to israel it's not recorded it was never written down as part of scripture I think it's important for us to believe that throughout that period, even though there may not have been any recorded word from heaven, there nevertheless was a spark of faith that remained in the heart of Israel. That as Jacob's sons multiplied and his grandsons took over as the next generation and then the great-grandsons, and as you move from generation to generation... There, there still was a spark of faith that existed there. And as we get into the next passage, we'll see that that was true. There, there were those who feared God, who believed in the God of Jacob, the God of Joseph. As they came into the land, they came in 70 in number, as we read in this particular passage. With, with Jacob, therefore, we're talking about 70. 70. And then over the transition period of several hundred years, they would multiply to well over two million who would then exit with Moses. And, and what we do as we think about that period of time, we have to, what's, what's the word I want? You have to kind of draw lines between the spots that we know to assume what took place and what the attitude of the of the people was. This is kind of a cocoon era, you might say, in which the tribes of Jacob were being prepared. They're becoming numerous and they were being prepared for the metamorphosis that would occur. And that metamorphosis would occur over a period of 40 years in several major events. The miracle of the Red Sea, the the giving of the law on the top of Mount Sinai and then the 40 or 38 years of subsequent wilderness wandering, all of this would be part of the metamorphosis. Moving a people from a slave people to a people who will will conquer and occupy a land will become a nation state with a theocratic government. That's a great transition from being an enslaved people who have no control over their own history and destiny to a people who are the people chosen by God, led by Him. And it will be while they are occupying the land, which they will do consistently for 1,500 years, while they are occupying the land, that God will speak the remaining words that He is to speak and that will be recorded in this book that we call the Bible, it will be within the social context, the spiritual context, and the physical environment of Israel that most of the rest of Scripture will be written. Yes, the book of Revelation was written on the Isle of Patmos and not in Israel, and it portrays the future, but within this, in the sense that John himself was raised in Israel, it's still within that social-spiritual context that all the remaining books, virtually all of them, not exactly all of them, Esther probably, at least socially was, but not physically, and some others. But uh, that would provide the milieu for Scripture. Over half a millennium before the time of the Exodus, God had said to Abraham in a vision, and, and you remember this possibly as we covered these verses in Genesis, He said, Abraham, come out here. Look at the heavens and count the stars if you can. He says, so shall your descendants be. When God made that promise, Abraham did not have a single child. His wife was barren. No prospects of a child. And he wasn't a young man anymore. And God said, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars of the sky. That had to be mind-boggling for Abraham. Talk about a test of faith. We, we sometimes feel our faith is tested because we have this illness that just won't go away, or, or we've lost our job and we can't find a job for six months. and we, I mean, those are tests of faith, but compare it to being totally childless with no hope of children. And stand out and God says, your, your descendants are going to be as numerous as stars in the sky. You're going to say, sure, right. You know. And Abraham didn't have a Bible to turn to. You know, he couldn't say, well, let's see, I'm going to see a, find a passage here that will confirm what I believe, you know. Give me a word, O Lord. I mean, he had to believe in what he'd heard God say, straight out to himself. And then later on, in a later vision, God had said, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come forth from you. Kings shall come forth from you. Well, Abraham was a prince in, in the sense that he was a prince of God. And, and he was a wealthy Bedouin. But, but he was not of a royal line. You know, his family hadn't been the royal line of Ur, of the Chaldees, or of Sumer. Uh, and so the, you know, the idea that from him would, become, would come kings was probably also equally mind-boggling. And there would be a partial fulfillment in this, in the sense that Ishmael would go forth and establish a nation... And that remember when Abraham, uh, in his later years, his wife Sarah died, and he remarried. Do you remember that little account? He remarried a, a young woman by the name of Keturah. And by her, six sons were born, and the sons are, sons are named. And, and they went ahead and, and established other uh, peoples who would become major tribal peoples, and certainly from them would come some kings. And then Isaac's son Esau would go off and found Edom, and Edom would have a long list of kings so there was a partial fulfillment in those things. But the focus of the promise was upon Israel. The focus of, on the, of the promise was upon Jacob and those who would come from Jacob and the nation of Israel which would be established and the numerous kings that would rule Judah and who would, who would rule Ephraim and, of course, men like David and Solomon and then ultimately the king of kings and the lord of lords who would come from the line of David which had its root in Abraham God had made a promise to Abraham that you would be as numerous as the stars of the heaven and yet when Israel entered Egypt there were only 70 of them that's not very many stars i mean most of us can count at least 70 stars in the sky uh, even on a not so clear night there are thousands of course visible to the naked eye uh, if you were to go out on a nice dark night on a clear night on a hillside up in the mountains and and look up in the sky, you would you 'd be able to if you could stop and do it, you know one, two is a little tough, but there are thousands that you, you could count, and of course god 's again was speaking hyperbolically you know, vast innumerable numbers was the implication here, so where is this multiplication going to occur? It occurs in Egypt. It's in Egypt. Egypt is that cocoon, that cocoon for Israel. When the 70 will become two and a half million, and then will emerge as God would lead them from, they'd break forth in this metamorphosis, break forth as the butterfly, if you will, of Israel as they would enter the land and uh, become God's people. Well, as they lived in Egypt, they at first were protected by Joseph, and and we read about that in the book of Genesis. And then after Joseph died, they they continued to be protected by those who remembered and exalted the memory of Joseph and what he had done. And so for those decades, Israel was safe in the land. They, They had peace, and during that time of peace, they multiplied, and we read about that in the seventh verse there. They were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty. I mean, notice how it keeps building. They were fruitful, they increased greatly, they multiplied and and became exceedingly mighty. Just kind of a crescendo through that verse. As you see, the 70 become two and a half million people. As we will see in further reading, they will even continue to multiply when they're oppressed. In the vision given by God to Abraham, which was given uh, by God even before Ishmael was born, God had warned Abraham that his descendants would be in a land where they would be oppressed. Let me just read that passage from 15th chapter of Genesis. Genesis 15, 13. And God said to Abraham, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. And as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they shall return here for the iniquity, Uh, the Amorite is not yet complete. What's fascinating about this particular passage is that God is not just dealing with Israel there. But as he proclaims this this prophecy, he is also dealing with Egypt and he is dealing with Canaan. You and I suffer from uh, historical myopia much of the time. You know, we can only see the little history that's right around us, you know. And and we often do not see the big picture. One one of the things I like about the Christian and Missionary Alliance is the effort to see the bigger picture, to see beyond the local little congregation, which is valuable and good, but but we need to see worldwide, and we need to see what God is doing, and we need to be a part of what God's doing. And that's why I think Christian missions are, are so important to our lives as believers in Christ. And... God portrays here the big picture. He says, you're going to go into this land, your descendants will, and they're going to be oppressed, but I'm going to deal with that land, which was Egypt. And then I'm going to bring you out, and you're going to be in Canaan, which I'm going to deal with also. And my concern is that the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. In other words, the people who lived in Canaan hadn't yet been given sufficient opportunity from God's perspective to yield to him, to turn to him, to listen to him, whatever it took to be changed. And he knew they wouldn't. But once their cup was full, then Israel would come in and they would be removed from the scene. God always portrays the big picture. God always sees the big picture. When God looks at you, He looks at me, He doesn't just see us individually, but he sees our wives, our husbands, our mothers, our fathers, our children, our grandchildren. He sees the whole context in which we move. And his plan is that we minister within that whole context, that that we be a blessing within the, the local congregation of which we are a part that wherever doors of opportunity are open, that we minister within the secular community, at our jobs, in our neighborhood, or wherever the opportunity arises. This is the picture God sees, and and we need to work on seeing it as God sees it. And and you'll notice that as God speaks of, of this prophecy, the thrust seems to be upon justice, upon mercy, upon redemption, Upon eternal factors, I will punish the people who have oppressed you. The iniquity Amorite is not yet full. I mean, God is not talking about whether they have a boat and can go out on the lake on weekends or whether they can, you know, have two houses, one in the mountains and one in the valley, and whether they're comfortable and whether they've got social security. These aren't the things that uh, God's focus is on. It's on the eternal factors. We often sing that song, this is not my home, we're just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. But sometimes that's all it is, it's just a little ditty we sing. and We don't really live as if that's true. Recognizing that this is really not where we're supposed to focus all of our energies. I mean, we have to work within the life God's given us, but we're to be putting our treasures up above rather than with Dean Witter or whatever. I've got nothing against Dean Witter. It's just the only one that came to my mind at the moment. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do that either, but I'm just saying that shouldn't be the focus of our our lives. So the, the book of Exodus, as we're going to be looking at many passages in this particular book, reveals the initial stage of God's fulfillment of his promise to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to make of them a great nation and to ultimately give them Canaan. They don't get Canaan in Exodus, as you well know. In fact, they don't get Canaan throughout the Pentateuch. It's all this moving in that direction. And they don't get the land until Joshua comes along. And God sends him into the land under the command of Joshua. Joshua. The first half of the book of Exodus deals with the salvation of Israel, saving them from the land of Egypt and moving them out to the mountain of God. And I'm sure you've all heard messages uh, about how our lives, before we came to know Christ, were spent in, quote, Egypt. And God moved us out through the Red Sea of the salvation experience to the foot of the cross or the foot of Sinai, where a new life would begin. Second half of the book of Exodus deals with God's adoption of Israel. On Mount Sinai, God adopted Israel eternally, and they would be his people, his chosen people with a capital C, and they would continue to be that. We've had a tendency within the framework of the church to kind of write the Jews off and to say, well, you know, now that God has adopted us, that the Jews don't count anymore. But uh, Paul in Romans tells us uh, clearly that uh, Israel has not been lopped off forever. Israel is still part of God's plan. And it's very interesting that... They are part of God's plan in the end times, as you can read in the book of Revelation. The book of Exodus contains the accounts of two major events, which are of such great importance in the history of Israel and the history of Scripture, that they are referred to over and over and over again in Scripture. And of course, those accounts are the deliverance, Exit out of Egypt, the Red Sea, into the Sinai Peninsula, and then God's giving of the law on top of Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai. And and these events just absorb the whole of the book of Exodus, virtually. And, you know, you read through other passages of Scripture, you read through the Psalms and some of the historical books, and there's constant reference back to these events, because they were the key events in the foundation of the nation of Israel. The first two chapters of Exodus sort of paved the way, and then the entire remaining 38 chapters of the book of Exodus chronicle less than two years of history. Now think about that. We've studied through Genesis. Some of us have. And, and from the beginning of time all the way up until, let's say, 1800 BC, when we talked about 4,000 years of history at least in one book. And now we're going to spend another book. It's not quite as long as Genesis. it's only 40 chapters instead of 50. But those 40 chapters deal with a year and a half. That's kind of detailed, especially for Scripture. But it's extremely important year and a half in the history of the world as well as the history of Israel. Now, this passage we just read, probably not the kind of passage that you would want to commit to memory and uh, quote to yourself when in a situation uh, arises, oh, yes, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, you know, Judah, (laughs) so inspiring. But these first few verses, especially verses 1 through 5, are for the purposes of establishing the the foundation upon which the book will be built. And it simply reminds the reader that 11 brothers came from Canaan into Egypt with Jacob, and one brother was already there that the entire family moved with everything that they had and all their possessions and all their people were moved in Egypt because the plan was to stay for a few years. They expected to stay at least for the remaining years of the drought. And that was possibly as many as four or five years. And then the passage reminds us again that the total number of people in the household of Jacob exclusive of servants was 70 people. Then verse 6 chronicles the end of the patriarchal era. Joseph died, all of his brothers died, all that generation died. Doesn't say when, doesn't give the order, they're just gone. That ends the patriarchal era. If you end the patriarchal era with the death of Joseph, why, I mean, that's chronicle here. If you take it through the remainder of the 11 brothers, that's here too. However we look at it, the patriarchal era has come to an end. In the years that followed the death of the last of Jacob's sons, the descendants of Israel are so blessed of God that they multiply rapidly and they kind of swarm over the land. And and verse 7 really begins to show the fulfillment of God's promise. Your descendants will be like the stars of the heaven. And we're told there that They became exceedingly mighty, and that means in number, as they literally swarmed over the delta of the Nile River. Remember the problem that Sarah had? The problem that Rebecca had? The problem that Rachel had? Israeli women didn't have that problem anymore. There was no barrenness in the land. They were multiplying, the families were growing, God had touched the women of Israel. These are what we might call the quiet years. Israel is in relative peace in the land. Uh, They're multiplying. They're in safety. But this is going to be followed by years of oppression. Exodus, verse 8. Chapter 1, verse 8 through verse 14. Now a new king arose over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, The people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely with them, lest they multiply. And in event of war, they also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. So they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. And they built for Pharaoh, storage cities, Python and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. And the Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously. And they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks, and at all kinds of labor in the fields, all their labors which they rigorously uh, imposed upon them. Now the story behind verse 8 is sketchy but important. Verse 8 says, A new king arose over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. Now that does not mean who didn't personally know Joseph, because Joseph had been dead for a long time. But a new king who had no recollection, honor, or reason to honor Joseph. Now as I mentioned before, Joseph and his family had moved into Egypt sometime in either the late 19th century B.C. or during the 18th century B.C. Now the Bible does not say anything, you remember as we studied through those last chapters of the book of Genesis, the Bible does not say anything about Egypt being subjected to exterior assaults during the time that Joseph and his family were in Egypt. It's silent about any attacks made during that time. But Egyptian records are not silent. Egyptian records report that during this time period, Egypt was invaded by outside people, outside powers. These invasions came from the northeast, out of Asia. The invaders are recorded in Egyptian history as the Hyksos, and the word Hyksos it is believed meant foreign rulers. Now, as best as has been determined, they were probably Canaanite, Amorite people with a few other mixed in, maybe some Aramaeans, maybe a few Hittites. But this kind of a eclectic group moved across the northern sinai area and began their assault upon egypt probably drawn to egypt because egypt was kind of like a shining jewel there you know uh, a land with with regular crops being produced a land abundant in people and wealth with shining cities and great pyramids and and it was it was a magnet to these lesser civilized people who came out of Canaan and Jordan and Syria and and that particular region. These attackers, the Egyptians make clear, had one distinct advantage over the Egyptians. That is, they had acquired the horse-drawn chariot for warfare. Egypt had not yet, by that time, adopted the chariot. Now, that's really strange when you think about it because the chariot had been in use over in Mesopotamia for a couple of thousand years. I mean, they have unearthed graves in uh, Mesopotamia where whole chariots have been buried, along with the king or the prince who who died and was buried in that grave. And they date those uh, chariots back to 3rd and 4th millennium B.C. So why is it that Egypt took so long to adopt the chariot? Well, maybe partly because they didn't have large flat areas over which to rumble with their chariots. But whatever was the case, the Hyksos came with chariots against the Egyptian armies. Now, the, the Middle Kingdom had, had become decadent and was weak anyway, and so the Egyptian armies were no match for the assailants. And the Hyksos were able, therefore, to overpower the Egyptian armies and to establish them in lower, themselves in Lower Egypt. Now, their capital was at, a, at Avaris. And I didn't put Avaris on this map because Avaris was important for a real short period of time. But if you look at this map and you look up here in the top, you see the name Ramses. If you go to the right of Ramses, the equivalent of about 15 miles, which would put you right up against this little body of water where the, one of the distributaries of the Nile pours in, right at that juncture was the city of Avaris. This was the capital of the Hyksos as they ruled the lower part of Egypt. From that capital they spread uh, southward down the the Nile Valley, but not as far as Thebes down here. Thebes apparently stayed outside the authority of uh, the, the area of direct Hyksos rule. It seems that the Hyksos did claim hegemony over Upper Egypt and that the pharaohs at Thebes were sort of like puppets to the pharaohs at Avaris, but the Hyksos did not directly rule. It's kind of like Vichy France during the first couple of years of World War II, if you remember, when the Nazis didn't occupy that southeastern part of France. It was a puppet government that tried to keep the Nazi occupation out of that portion of France. That, that may have been the situation uh, relative to Thebes. And this is thought to be so because the pharaohs who ruled from Avaris are called the pharaohs of the 15th dynasty, whereas the pharaohs of the 14th dynasty ruled at the same time in Thebes. So the 13th dynasty was the last dynasty of the uh, Middle Kingdom. And so as the 13th dynasty dissipated, the 14th dynasty of Egyptian pharaohs established themselves at Thebes, the incoming invaders then proclaimed themselves to be the 15th dynasty of pharaohs, ruling simultaneously with the 14th dynasty, over which they probably had a measure of authority. Now, did Joseph live when the Hyksos invaded the land? We don't know. As you read the story of Joseph, there's nothing to indicate any kind of a break But it's possible that the Hyksos came into the land and that Joseph survived the transition. That from being prime minister to an Egyptian pharaoh, he became prime minister to a Hyksos pharaoh. That's not hard for us to grasp in the sense that God is almighty. And if God wanted Joseph in power, God would make the transition. And there is biblical, well, I was going to say precedent for this, but it comes later, (laughs) actually. Uh, You remember Daniel. Remember, Daniel was uh, second, thir- third person in the kingdom at the time that Babylon collapsed. And yet later on, he was also very high in the government of the Persians after they had taken over Babylon. And so he held this high position uh, under two different, very different uh, kingdoms that were established there at Babylon. So it's very possible that Joseph lived through the transition period. Now some argue that the Hyksos were already in power. And that's why Joseph was given a high position, because they were Asiatics, he was an Asiatic, no problem. But you remember the story as we read about it there. Uh, It was very clear that the Egyptians were hostile to to non-Egyptians, as we read through the story. Remember, they hated shepherds, it said. They wouldn't sit at the same table as Asiatics. And it kind of indicates that maybe this had not yet happened. It's more likely, I think, that the Hyksos came in after Joseph died And that the Hyksos continued to honor his name as a forerunner of themselves. Because he was an Asiatic as they were Asiatics, and he was prime minister in the land, and so they kind of honored him as as kind of an early Hyksos, maybe even, having moved into the land before they came. Whatever the case, there seems to be no major crack or break in the... uh, situation relative to Joseph and Israel there in the land with the coming of this Hyksos uh, dynasty. Now, the Hyksos held power for about a century and a half. That's the best that's going to be determined from the Egyptian records. From about, oh, maybe 1720 BC to about 1570, somewhere in that period, the Hyksos held power in the land of Egypt. They were eventually destroyed. They were eventually chased out. The Egyptians had a military revival. They adopted the chariot themselves, and, and then they drove out the Hyksos, driving them clear back. In fact, there's a story in Egyptian history of one of the pharaohs at the beginning of the 16th century attacking a, 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 a city in Canaan, on the edge of Canaan that belonged to the Hyksos and overpowering that. And whatever the case, the, the new king, who did not know Joseph. Who was this? Well, as I've put on the outline there, his, he was probably the pharaoh Amos. This person seems to have the uh, greatest likelihood of being the pharaoh described there in the 8th cha- verse of the 1st chapter of Exodus. Now a king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. This seems likely because he is the first pharaoh of the 18th dynasty. It was a totally Egyptian dynasty. And he came to power somewhere around 1570 or so B.C., starting the new kingdom in Egyptian history. If you look at the break between Genesis uh, 46, when Jacob moved into the land, and now the time when there arose a pharaoh over Egypt who didn't know Joseph, we're looking at a span there of over 200 years of time. So, during that 200 years of time, Israel has been in the process of multiplying, spreading over the land, and now there's to be a major change. This particular pharaoh, according to Egyptian history, personally led the armies of Egypt in driving the Hyksos out of the land. He was a warrior pharaoh. So you can imagine his attitude towards any Asiatic still living in the land. He would probably hate them. He would be afraid of them. He would be concerned about them. And he would personally want to eliminate any reference to any important Asiatic in the history of Egypt. And so he, when it says, That he did not know Joseph, this seems to imply, given the history of the period, that he consciously went about to destroy the memory of Joseph in Egypt. Now in Egyptian history, as well as the history of other ancient peoples, there have been times when a new dynasty has come to power. When a previous dynasty was considered to be a horrible uh, dynasty, it's sort of like, remember, when Khrushchev came to power and he started bad-mouthing everything Stalin was and everything Stalin did? They went through a kind of a de-Stalinization in the Soviet Union. Sort of what happened here. There's evidence that he set about to eliminate from every inscription and every monument any record of the Asiatics being in Egypt. And that is probably the reason why, and some of the liberal Bible scholars have said, you know, this whole story is made up. Can't be true because if you study Egyptian history, you'll discover it doesn't say anything about Hebrews living in the land for 400 years, and it doesn't mention a man by the name of Joseph being prime minister. Well, the main reason may be because Amos blotted out all the record. Purposely did that. This has happened at other times in history. It's happened in the Americas. When the Incas came to power in uh, Peru, they did everything they could to blot out the history of all the peoples they ruled, so that it would come down through history as if the, there was you know, there was God and then there was Inca, and that's it, you know? There was nothing before the Incas. They were responsible for everything, kind of like the Russians saying they invented everything. You know, this kind of a uh, attitude. And so it seems it could have been with Amos as he came to power. In the 200 years since Israel moved into Egypt, the Israelites probably by that time were already over 100,000 in number. And you might think that that's not likely, that 70 would become 100,000, but I have computed it myself just to make sure. <laughs> you, know, I, you read about it in, in certain books, you think, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> so you sit down and figure it out yourself. And it works. It does. In fact, I came up with a figure that could have been as great as 135,000 by this particular period of time. And the reason is that, first of all, the Israelis seem to live longer. And we see that in Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. And so they had a fairly long lifespan. They lived in relative security. But above all, they had God's blessing upon them. And so, with those factors in mind, there's no reason why you could not compute that they had a 5% per year growth rate. Now, most of the countries of the world today do not have a 5% per year growth rate, but there are countries that have better than a 4% per year growth rate. And so if you add these other factors like longevity and God's blessing, no problem having a 5% per year growth rate, which would be doubling the population in about every 17 years. And when you figure that through a 200-year period of time, you easily multiply 70 up to 135,000 people in that period of time. Even when oppression came, even when they said, you guys got to go out and throw all the baby male baby Jews into the Nile, even during that time, the scripture says they continue to multiply and to grow exceedingly. And there was no problem. This was one of the things the liberals had a big problem with uh, and still do when it comes to uh, the, the book of Exodus. How in the world could 70 people become two and a half million, which is clearly implied in the book of Exodus. And the answer is no problem. No problem. They could have easily done it and probably did. Well, we're running, we ran out of time. What we'll do is um, pick up with verse 9 next week and uh, see what the Pharaoh tried to do about this and how successful he was. It reminds me of the guy who stands in the street corner and says, If there really is a God, I give him 30 seconds to strike me dead. And 30 seconds later he says, See, I told you so. <laughs> Or the Russian astronaut who went up there in space and said, well, I looked around didn't see God, so there must be no God. You know? <laughs> That's sort of like the frustration of Pharaoh trying to thwart the will of God.